another episode of Tales from the Cartridge, the video game story podcast. I am one of your hosts, Eric Bedrod. And 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 I am your other co-host, <laughs> Ryan Bauer. Eric, that was so scary. I was practicing that all morning. <laughs> oh my goodness. I am shaking in my boots. <laughs> it's our last Halloween episode. You gotta go big, you know? Uh, Ryan. How are you, and what have you been playing? I am great. Uh, I went for a great walk this morning, um, and then I spent my morning cleaning my keyboard because, Eric, this week, my partner and I, as soon as her case comes, are building new computers. I'm building one for me, and all my parts are going into hers so we can play games together on computers. Uh, Very exciting. I will keep you posted on how it goes next time we record. But yeah, so I was cleaning things in preparation of of new computers. So I'm I'm very excited watching the uh, order every day to see when it will be here because I'm very excited. I think think next mid next week we're going to dive in. Um, What have I been playing? Uh, I played a ton of, we had uh, Indigenous People's Day here in Maine um, Mm -hmm. earlier this week, and I played so much Crusader Kings. I was taken, I've moved out of Europe, I'm done with them, and now I'm I'm in Africa. I'm the last of, in this line of matriarchal queens, and I'm just taking over Africa and, wow. and taking names, and then we're going to move in and wipe out Europe and get rid of them. How uh, very European of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in, re, in rebellion of colonialism, we will have our own colonialism. Um, but yeah, so I played a ton of that earlier this week, still, still loving Hades, playing it just about mm. every single day, mm-hmm. uh, taking turns with runs of my partner um just killing it um and i think that's it we we played a little bit of assassin's creed in preparation of uh, valhalla which i wasn't excited about and now after seeing all the new stuff i'm getting more and more excited um but yeah that's that's what i've been up to what about you how are you and what have you been playing i'm doing good i got my first week at my new job which is always the hardest week at your new job i think i didn't do much it was mostly trainings but other than that it was fine and uh as for what I'm playing, I had a well, because it was a new new job and my first week, I didn't have a whole lot of time to play anything. So as always, um, being a dead horse here, I played Hades like, like you, um, and I just every day I'm just checking for those that cross save news. It, it just any way I can get my save from my computer to my Switch, I would happily just do it in a heartbeat because I just want to play on the Switch so bad. So I'm super excited for that. Whatever I, I think it'll literally any day now it's supposed to happen. I think it's supposed to happen this month, and if I'm wrong, I'll cry. Other than that, that's basically it. And I'm sad though, Ryan. I'm really sad because it's our last spooky episode for another year. Yeah, it's been it's been a journey. It's been a, a magical, terrifying journey. And we have some interesting uh, news to share at the end of this episode. Yes, for a lot of format changes. We're, not a lot of format changes, but some format changes for future episodes to come in November. And the changes we're kind of bringing to our podcast moving forward. So if you're interested in that, stick with us. And as always, um, when we talk, this story, I mean, it's a spooky story, obviously. It's pretty disturbing. So if that's not your jam, totally okay if you don't want to listen to that. Um, Especially for my mom. (laughs) Mom, (laughs) you're you're a big fan. I appreciate that. Uh, Literally this story, I just don't want you to hear from my lips. (laughs) I talked to her the other day and she's, you know, super supportive, obviously, like a good mom is. And I love her very much. Um, And she was like, oh, you must have known I was listening to your podcast. I was like, no, I didn't know that. She goes, oh, yeah, my ears are bleeding it's so much right now from listening to you <laughs> swear and, no. and tell this horrifying story. And I was like, oh, great. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, just wait. <laughs> wait till next Sunday. <laughs> Let's run it back. Let's do it again, Ma. But yeah, so it's been a great month of spooks. I want to give a big shout out to our foreign listeners, our international listeners. Again, we have a few from Japan. And then we had one from Germany, a download from Germany. And there is someone in Canada that's been just listening to us 
constantly and that is amazing thank you so much whoever you are yeah. out there brother because you're you're our neighbors technically actually we're in maine so really <laughs> we're really close <laughs> yeah yeah we are neighbors um yeah. and whoever you are write in tell us who you are so we can shout you out and, yeah uh, yeah please celebrate please you and uh whatever we whatever you need from us so that you can tell more people please <laughs> <laughs> please just tell more people please <laughs> But yeah, no, super cool. And uh, and like Ryan said, and this goes to our Canadian listeners, as well as all of our listeners, if you have any thoughts, feelings, or perspectives about the episodes that we cover, either from the past, the present, or the future ones we're going to be covering, let us know. You can email us at talesfromthecartridge at gmail.com. All of the E's are threes, as well as finding us on Twitter and Instagram. You DM us. Let us know what you think. We would super super appreciate it. We've already had our first one, uh, and it was fantastic. We, we really got a kick out of it, so... Please, please, please send us more mail. We'd love to read it. So without further ado, uh, Ryan, today we are covering the game Outlast Whistleblower. It's the DLC to the game Outlast that we covered two weeks ago. But before we jump into the story, let's jump into some of the background and influences for the game. Yeah, let's do it. Um, So this came out on May 6th, 2014, which is like less than a year, I think, from when the other one came out, which was in September of the year before. Uh, Again, developed and published Mm. by our our Canadian friends, uh, Red Barrels, and written again by the one we talked about in the previous Outlast episode, that that writer, uh, J.T. Petty, who's written some other... other games and some movies and some tv so and i think like we talked about last time it kind of shows similar to with soma and um similar to half-life and some other games that had like proper writers on them it really shows yeah definitely so with this being a a dlc uh, a sequel to the first outlast a lot of those influencers are the same just like we talked about that found footage stuff the amnesia stuff they seemed like they were just trying to iterate on this one of the quotes from somebody from the company was people want us to keep trying to scare them we're more than happy to oblige, and we'll scare the shit out of them. So <laughs> that, like, sets the stage. This is just going to be even more scary, which I cannot even imagine, although speaking to you, it sounds like they have achieved this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And a lot of the changes that went into this game seemed like it was to help just improve that experience of Outlast, making the atmosphere deeper and spookier, changing some of those encounters. They're, they're less predictable, I, although I cannot imagine being less predictable than uh, two naked twins following you around, but oh, we'll just see wait. what they have <laughs> done, <laughs> what these monsters have created for us to experience. And then I think, Eric, you had some information just to connect the dots for us. Yeah, so what I want to kind of go over before we jump into the story is I realized that going through the DLC, going through Atlas Whistleblower, I kind of got more context about the base game that we already covered. And I really want to go over it again one more time, or just, or just go over it again in general, because I feel like I didn't do the best job of explaining this this aspect of the game um, because it's so important. So what I'm talking about is in the game, in Outlast, the main character, Miles, is constantly talking about this ringing in his head. We hear this thing called the morphogenic engine. And I, I never really got a clear picture of what the heck that even was going through the game. And maybe that's my fault, honestly. There probably was a lot of um, information on it, and I just missed it throughout the, the walkthrough I was going through. But at the end, so spoilers... If you haven't listened to our Outlast episode, please go back and listen to that first. If you're interested, then come back here. That way you're not spoiled with anything. So here we go. When Miles finds Billy Hope at the end of the game, the one who is controlling the wall rider, he's in this like water tank thing. And he is in a lucid state dream. And that allows him to control the wall rider. And what he's connected to is the morphogenic engine. And when you're in this room with him, it's this giant black ball it's just this humongous black ball and that is what the morphogenic engine is and that's why everyone can hear it because it's so large 
and that ringing that it brings out, the patients who go through this treatment with the morphogenic engine can hear it constantly. It gets stuck in their heads. And that's what Miles has been hearing. It gets stuck in his head too. So the whole point of these experiments, they're trying to find that one patient that can enter into a lucid state dream, and that will allow them to control the nanotechnology that is the wall rider. But they keep failing because none of their patients are able to get to that state, except for Billy Hope. He's the first. Does that kind of make sense, Ryan? Yeah, that makes sense. I think that gives some more context as to why all of these individuals are, are have been put through so much trauma is because mm-hmm. they're trying to find whoever they can to, to test this technology on. Yeah, and, and actually they stayed in this game, but and I kind of want to state it before we go into the story, but like the patients at Mount Massive Asylum, they, they have mental health issues, but they're not all like lunatic killer psychopaths. They just have mental health issues. Some of them are killers. Some of them do need like extra help, obviously. But a lot of the patients aren't. But when they go through this morphogenic engine therapy, that Dr. Warnick has kind of like founded and then Murkoff like really took off with, that's what's causing these patients to, to lose their minds is, the, is this engine and all the demented, terrifying images they're forced to stare at in this lucid dreaming state. It just makes them lose their minds. And we'll see that too. We'll actually, in this story, we'll see a patient kind of lose their minds because of this therapy and, and you'll kind of see what happens with them in a sense. And it's really interesting. You kind of get a better sense of why everything is happening the way it is. But yeah, this story is really cool. It is basically a prequel, but also takes place in the middle of the main story of the game with Miles. Though you, I will say you never meet Miles. But it's very cool because it sets up why Miles is there to begin with. So I think overall, I actually like it more than the, the base story with Miles. And one more aspect I want to talk about really quick too is that what this story does is it does a really great job at kind of showing toxic masculinity but in a totally different way than most people have ever probably seen it done in entertainment media. Like it's done rather than from a a male to a female perspective, it's done from a male to a male perspective. And it's really, I think really well done. And it's, it's just really terrifying to know that like, obviously the story is very like special and it does this, this doesn't happen like every day kind of thing, but toxic masculinity is a real thing. And I think this game does a really great job at kind of pointing that out and seeing how dangerous it can be but in a very extreme case. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. I'm excited to see, not excited. I'm interested to see <laughs> what that is, what that's going to look like. I, I love in media where they take this like real life terrorizing thing, this real life really scary thing, mm-hmm. like juxtapose it with something that's like abnormally terrifying and like put them together and say, which one is spookier? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. this it thing really that like people live with every day versus this thing that like is never going to affect you. But look how both of them lead to these terrifying outcomes. I- I'm excited for that or interested yeah. in that. This story really shows that death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. <laughs> it's <Well>. so much <laughs> worse. <laughs> this oh, game really no. points it out in a really great way. <laughs> oh no. So, uh, okay. so without further ado, are you ready, Ryan? Um, I'm, Buckled in, all the lights are on, the windows are open, <laughs> I'm ready to go. Perfect for our spooky episode. Listening, though, you are contractually obligated to mm-hmm. listen to this with the lights off in a dark room by yourself. Yeah, we'll find you. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> just how it goes. I'm sorry. It's a legally binding, not binding contract. and We just can't, yeah. you know, it is what it is. All right, <laughs> here we go. He's at his computer writing the email. The outgoing recipient is milesupser at gmail.com. He's nervous and is terrified of what could come if anyone finds out, but he continues to type away at the following email. You don't know me. I have to make this quick. They might be monitoring. I did two weeks of software consultation at Murkoff Psychiatric Systems Facility in Mount Massive. 
all sorts of NDAs I'm very much breaking right now. But seriously, fuck those guys. Terrible things happening here. Don't understand it. Don't believe half the things I saw. Doctors talking about dream therapy going too deep. Finding something that they've been waiting for in the mountain. He leans back, taking a deep breath. Looking around the server room he's sitting in, he turns back to his laptop and continues to type. People are being hurt and Murkoff is making money. It needs to be exposed. He takes a deep breath and sends the email just before someone enters the server room. Who's in there? What the hell are you doing? They yell. He stands up from his laptop, slowly makes his way from the back of the server room. Turning the corner, he sees a person standing in the doorway. Park? They've paged you like three times already. There's something urgent at the engine. Over the intercom, he hears the message. Wayland Park, employee 1466, report to the Morphic engine monitoring immediately. The whistleblower, Wayland Park, leaves the server room and passes his coworker. The coworker questions Wayland. What were you doing in there anyway? I thought you were just a software guy. Wayland ignores the question and moves down the hall. As he makes it to another room, a security guard at the desk questions him. You're Wayland Park, aren't you? Why weren't you answering the page? I'll tell them you're incoming. Wayland nods his head and opens the door to his right. He walks down the corridor and into the door leading to the morphogenic engine monitoring room. He walks in to see the morphogenic engine, the massive black mechanic orb behind the monitoring station's safety glass. Ah, Park. A doctor to his left notices him. You're cutting it close. The next patient's incoming, and arterial spin's still dark. We need you at the front terminal. Wayland sits at his desk and begins to type away at his keyboard. He can see the morphogenic engine ahead of him in the next room. The disturbing images coming onto the screens in front of the water chambers, the prisoners sit inside. He types and types, his co-workers commenting on his dedication to the Murkoff Corporation. Wayland can hear them bringing in another patient. They're screaming for help, but no one offers it. Wayland watches behind his desk in horror. The patient struggles and is able to break free. He runs to the glass, separating him and the monitoring station Wayland sits inside. Staring at Waylon, the patient screams, Help me! Don't let them do this! Please! Don't let them! You! I know you can stop this! You have to help me! You have to! The patient is grabbed by security and dragged back as Waylon steps away in horror. The security agent next to Waylon warns him to calm down, but a Murkoff employee dressed in a blue hazmat suit calms them both and asks Waylon to sit down. Waylon complies, though he does not want to. The patient is forced into the morphogenic engine, and Wayland prepares. An image of the patient comes onto Wayland's screen. The words Wall Rider, displayed at the corner of the monitor, recording the patient, Eddie Gluskin. He can see Eddie struggling in the water tube, multiple hoses going in his mouth and nose. Before the engine is started, the man in the blue hazmat suit instructs Wayland to leave due to his job being completed. Wayland complies and exits the monitoring station. Heading back the way he came, Wayland goes back to the server room where he left his laptop. He goes to the back to find someone sitting in his seat. Someone's been telling stories outside of class, a person says with a cocky tone as security rushes into the server room, their guns drawn. Wayland is shoved to the floor, picked up and slammed into the wall. He falls again to the floor as the cocky individual continues to speak, holding Wayland's laptop. Mr. Wayland Park, consulting contract 2808. Software engineer with a level 2 security clearance. Graduated cum laude from Berkeley, but still somehow not smart enough to realize that the last thing a fly ought to do in a spider's web is wiggle. 
The cocky individual is dressed nicely and hair slicked back, his face lit up by the screen shining on him. Waylon breathes heavy as he listens in terror. The cocky individual drops Waylon's laptop on the floor, breaking it. Somehow dumb enough to think a borrowed laptop, onion router, and firewall patch would be enough to fool the world's leading supplier of biometric security. Stupid, Mr. Park. More than stupid, in fact. That was crazy. I'm afraid we're going to have to have you committed. Mr. Park, would you willingly submit to forced confinement? Did you hear that, agent? He said yes, Mr. Blair. The security agent next to him says with a smile on his face. Great. Oh, and did I just hear Mr. Waylon Park volunteer for the morphogenic engine program? Blair questions the agent again. That's what I heard, Mr. Blair, the security agent answers. That was brave indeed, Waylon. The Murkoff Corporation and the Onward March of Science both appreciate your bravery and sacrifice. Maybe you can administer Mr. Park here with a light anesthetic, Blair says with joy in his voice. Gladly, the security guard says, clenching his fist and punching Waylon in the face. Waylon's head hits the ground only to see Blair's foot kick him in his face before blacking out. Ryan, what are you thinking so far? We just started, but a lot's kind of going on. So what are you thinking? Uh, Yeah, so um, it's really terrifying. I mean, the idea that these individuals with so much power are able to just kind of throw you around is really scary. And and we can tell Waylon, I think they've done a really good job of setting up Waylon as somebody who does not want to do this. He's trying to fight against it any way he can. But leaving your laptop open in a server room, not the smartest, but I I think... (laughs) They're setting him up to be somebody who isn't into this and already making him feel very different than Miles, right? Um, right. Somebody who willingly went into this place and he didn't want to deal with the horror. But Waylon, at least the idea of Waylon I have in my mind is a much more kind of conscious and maybe moral. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, individual who who seems to have he knows this is wrong he's trying to do something to stop it but him getting caught i think like you set up in the beginning like death there are things worse than death and i would i would already agree i would already say that being forcefully <laughs> committed against your will to a place where you have a very clear idea of what's happening you know exactly what's going to happen to you is just terrifying yeah, yeah. And actually, no, I think you make very good points about Waylon. He's very different than Miles. And we talked about this in our Outlast episode, how Miles is very, like, cynical. He's kind of dark in his, his thought process. He, like, welcomes death on a lot of the people that hurt him. And I think it's easy to sympathize with that. But with Waylon, it's very different. And we'll see that throughout the story, too. But he's much more of a person who does not want the credit of taking Murkoff down. He just wants to do it because it's the right thing to do. And... In, in Waylon's background, we don't ever get to really talk about this in the story. It's never really mentioned. But he's, like, stuck in this facility. He can't go home. And he has a family. So he knows what he's doing is dangerous. And it was it's risky. So now he's really paying the consequences. Though he tried to do his best to hide it with a borrowed laptop and an onion router and a firewall patch. But it still wasn't enough because this corporation is just so powerful and good at keeping secrets that there was no way they're ever going to not find out. But the email does get out, and this is the email that is sent to Miles. So Waylon is the one who is able to send this information to Miles, and then Miles comes to Mount Massive. So, you know, take it for what it is. I think Waylon is trying to do the best he can, but I think, you know, it's because of Waylon's email that really sets Miles down a, a dark path. Yeah. I don't think that's Waylon's intention. I think he's wanting to do the right thing. But sometimes I, I think what this game does really well is it teaches you that sometimes doing the right thing can really hurt you in the end. So... 
but we'll see with Waylon. One last thing. I also, if I'm picking on this right, this is a really good characterization of pre-evil, well, I don't know if we'll add this in, but that pre-evil Blair, right? Who we saw at the in in the first Outlast. I'm, 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 I'm making the connection that he is that cocky jerk who cut off Miles' fingers, yeah? We've already set him up as this terrifying individual, but before he's a monster. Actually, no. Blair's not. Oh, Traeger. interesting. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's it, You would think he is. They're both. Trigger was an executive, so he kind of had that cocky tone, yeah. too. But Blair's different. And actually, you may or may not see Traeger later. I, I don't okay. know. All right. <laughs> but it, either way, it's setting up to, as to here's this not monstrous individual who's doing something absolutely monstrous. Right. He's just as bad as the people that have hurt Miles and yeah. who might hurt Waylon in the future. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's not diagnosed as someone with mental health issues, but you can tell that he has some demented, mm-hmm. you know, mental health going on here that he thinks this is okay to do to somebody. Yeah. Two hours have passed. His vision is blurry, but Waylon can make out the figure approaching. The figure picked him up and put him in a chair, his wrists and ankles strapped. Another figure approaches, gas mask over their face, as they strap his head in. Open your eyes. You don't have to wake up, but open your eyes, the figure says, completely covered in a blue medical hazmat suit. Behind the figure are nine TV monitors, all showing static. The figure slaps him across the face. What's the matter? Somebody hit you. Here, let me help, the figure says as he uses his tongue to lick the area hit. Andrew, you getting these alerts? The gas mask figure says to the other. Kinda busy here, Andrew says back. It sounds like real trouble at the engine. They said Hope made a lateral ascension. The gas mask figure says. The nine TVs behind Andrew start displaying images of ink blots. Billy Hope, Andrew says back, and they're not happy about it. No. Shit. Shit, shit. Come on, Andrew says, panicked. Wayland stares at the TVs and grunts in pain. Andrew and the gas-masked figure leave him. He can see the camera pointed at him now, recording him. The nine TVs continue to display disturbing images, the sounds of the morphogenic engine ringing in his ears. Wayland struggles and rises from the pain smashing in his head. Without explanation, the TVs turn off and restraints unlock, allowing Wayland to fall forward out of his chair. He looks to his left and sees a patient in a similar situation, behind a thick panel of glass but already dead. To Wayland's right, another patient who is able to be freed from their restraints and behind another thick panel of glass. Shh, shh, the patient signals to Wayland, one finger in front of their mouth. You hear that, don't you? You hear it? Oh, oh, oh. Wayland sees it but cannot fathom what it is. A floating, black, ghostly figure approaches the other patient and lifts them into the air. Waylon watches in horror until the lights suddenly go out. He can hear the patient screaming at the top of their lungs, and gruesome noises can be heard from the other side of the room. Waylon can still see the images on the TV, but in the back of his head. He can still hear the morphogenic engine ringing between his ears. With the room still dark, he takes the camcorder set up to record him and removes it from the tripod. He brings the camcorder to his eye and turns on the night vision. He sees the other room that the other patient was in, covered in blood, slowly dripping from the glass panel. Waylon sets the camcorder to record and begins to speak, barely holding his emotions back. (sighs) I fucked up. Where am I? Hours could have passed or weeks. 
brain is filled with static. They made me watch the... The engine. Have to get help. Have to call for help. Lisa, I'm sorry. If I die, I know you'll find me. I know you won't rest until you find my body. I hope you find this camera with my corpse. I hope the evidence on it does what I couldn't. Exposes the truth. <sighs> Lisa, baby, I'm so sorry. I fucked up. I thought I was doing the right thing, but I fucked up so bad. Waylon goes to the door, but it doesn't open. He looks around for any way to get out, but there's none. As he looks, the door leading into the cells Waylon and the now-dead patient reside in opens, and in walks a person. It's dark, so Waylon can't see what they look like. The person sees Waylon and says, You think you're safe in there? Wallflower. Pretty flower. Fucking... I'll open you up. I'll open you up and show you. Make you purr. You wait right there. Waylon's heart continues to race as he watches the person walk by his cell and to the computers on the opposite side of the room. A few keystrokes and Waylon's door unlocks. Without wasting a second, Waylon runs from his cell and out through the door the stranger entered through. He runs down the main hall of the cells to see patients revolting against security agents, killing them in gruesome ways. The black ghostly figure appears and approaches Waylon. He runs past the ghost and down the hall before rushing through the closest door. He finds an open vent and travels inside. Waylon can hear security agents in the room below him trying to figure out how to escape. One suggests using the shortwave radio in the prison of the asylum to call for help. Waylon understands that that radio is his only chance to get help and to escape the situation. He continues down the vent as his camcorder continues to record. He documents his plan. <sighs> There's a radio. In the prison, shortwave. If it's electronic, I can make it talk. Make it work for me. There's hope. There's hope, Lisa. I'm coming home to you. My mistake was subtlety, like you always said. I thought leaking information to a few journalists was the safer way. I didn't want the spotlight, the attention. Murkoff is dangerous. I know that. I thought I had to be subtle, for your sake, Lisa, and for the boys. But I should have exposed what Murkoff was doing to the world. I should have shouted to anyone and everyone. I can't die. Not before I reach that radio. They can't cover this up now. It's too broken. It's too dangerous. Finding a hole to escape out of the vent, Waylon enters an empty room and exits into a hallway. He continues through a decontamination chamber and out the other side. Down the halls in front of him, doctors run at full speed. Waylon tries to catch up as he sees them leave and exit the building. As he makes it to the exit, Waylon desperately tries to open the doors, but the doctors who have just left lock the doors behind them. Waylon gives up trying to open the doors and steps back. The room he's in is covered in carnage and blood. Really quick too, I want to say this. I was going to add this to the story, but it's kind of like the documentation in this game is kind of wonky. They put like random documents in places that they shouldn't be. And it's kind of like weird, but there is a document he finds in this spot where it highlights the fact that Blair, Mr. Blair, who forces Waylon into being committed into the asylum, has gone out already and met with Waylon's wife, telling her that he has been committed and that he has a mental illness and needs to be taken care of. She does not believe him and uh, is very negative towards him and the Murkoff Corporation. Uh, Blair documents that he's told her that if, for whatever reason, that this is a false uh, commitment by Mr. Park, then they will lose their insurance coverage and be in be massive hospitalization debt and or healthcare debt. Uh, and he also says that if they don't stop, if Mrs. Park doesn't stop 
saying negative things that he'll take care of things personally. So I wanted to say that really quick, just to show how ruthless Blair is trying to be this guy who is just really just this awful person. And it's kind of motivation for Waylon, I think, to get out, to take control of the situation. Why he really probably hates Blair more than anyone. Yeah, and it just could, again, further shows this like manipulation in this terrifying figure who just wields seemingly unsurmountable power in this situation. Yeah. And uh, is able to just kind of put pressure on his family in a way that is um, really scary and um, really real. Right, yeah. I and mean, he has, so like Waylon is married. He has two kids. Um, though it's kind of like contradicted throughout the game through documents and through like different things. Like sometimes it's say that he has one kid and sometimes it's said that he has two. I'm going with the two because I said that, I saw that more throughout the game that he has two kids. Uh, so he has like a motivation to get out of this besides just trying to live, right? Like he's trying to live and get out for his wife and his kids. Um, it's cool that he seems like he has a very good relationship with his wife. He's constantly referencing her in these documentations he does into his camcorder as it's recording. So it's kind of cool in that regard. You never see them talk to each other because he's, she's not at the, at the asylum, obviously. But you can tell that he loves her very much. Yeah, which I think, again, adds more to this character than what we had for Miles. Definitely. And Miles had no, as far as we know, no romantic involvements or no like no need to get out of the asylum to get back to his loved ones it was more just like i hate all of you i hope you all die and i just want to get out of here in one piece yeah um for miles so i like that's why i like waylon a lot is because like he has these realistic motivations um that i think most people would have in this situation he wants to get back to his loved ones he wants to do the right thing which i like yeah and i think in some ways makes it even scarier yeah it's much more relatable yeah and also, too, really quick for the storygoers, I mentioned this last time in the last Outlast episode, but when you use your camcorder to look at specific things in the game, the main character will write down their thoughts, feelings, and perspectives, much like you should do by emailing us. <laughs> but I thought that's kind of jarring and would be kind of silly in those situations. So as Waylon is recording things with his camcorder, getting evidence throughout Murkoff trying to escape, he, I had him say out loud his thoughts, feelings, and perspectives instead. It just makes more sense, I think, that way. Waylon makes his way back, and through the hallways he hasn't traveled down yet. He finds himself in a kitchen. Murkoff employees hang from the rafters, their blood coating all surfaces. Human limbs can be seen boiling in pots. He enters into the cafeteria to find someone microwaving a security agent's head, and jumps in terror as their head explodes. A grizzled and shirtless patient looms over the body, a mechanical saw in the right hand, blood covering his mouth. He sees Waylon and points his saw in anger. Don't you look at us. I love him. Wayland stands before him in horror as he records the cannibal patient in their splendor. He slowly walks away and whispers his thoughts into the camcorder. Don't ask to see my body, Lisa. When I die, when you finish the lawsuits that let you pry this footage from Murkoff's army of lawyers and corporate hitmen, don't make them show my body. Just bury it or burn it. Let my sons remember me whole. That man was eating human flesh. He looks at me and I see anger, a little desire, but more than anything, hunger. Please don't make them show you my body. Waylon happily leaves the kitchen and moves down another hall. He sees a door he can go through that would hopefully take him to another exit in the building, but it is locked shut due to a set of handcuffs. Jumping over a barricade and finding a security agent's dead body, Waylon finds a handcuff key and hopes it's the right one. A patient follows Waylon, commenting on his silky skin and wanting to tell him a secret. But Waylon does not listen. He runs fast and unlocks the handcuffs, entering past the metal door. All right, so another break. There's a lot of a lot of things going on in this story. It's very dense, so I thought more discussions would probably be necessary. Ryan, what are you thinking so far? 
So I really like how we're seeing the kind of in Outlast, we, we come to this place and we see this kind of hellscape of Asylum. And it's really interesting to now see how it got there. Uh, at the same time, it's terrifying. It's almost kind of satisfying to see these individuals who you know have possibly put these people in these terrible situations and mm-hmm. have actively done this to these individuals to see them kind of lashing back. But the extent to which they're doing it is just kind of grotesque and terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And something, and actually, I wanted to cover this too. I totally forgot about this. I will say this though. What the story is doing for me so far is that I love that we're seeing a different aspect of the main story that we've already covered, right? And this is what something that uh, that Chris LaForce, our very first email writer, asked us if there's any games that stand out in this situation where like side characters kind of explain the main story through their perspective, through their their exploration and adventures. And I think that Outlast Whistleblower is perfect. It's like the one of the best examples of that. It does such a great job because all the crazy people that Miles runs into, you think that they're just the worst of the worst in this building, but there's other characters, other worst figures inside this asylum that we never get to see through Miles' eyes, but we get to see through Wayland's. And I think that's such a cool aspect that this whole time, these two are kind of going through their own experiences and seeing their own horrors, but also getting a little bit of a taste of each other's adventure, which is so cool. Yeah, I think that's a really great way to do that. I also think, um, thinking about that, we know Half-Life has a similar experience to this, right? Where there's Mm -hmm. the main Half-Life and then there's Blue Shift and all the other ones that were done by Gearbox that um, I wish I would have remembered. But I think I think it's it's really cool to see in this experience how we're seeing, uh, like you said, more of these horrors and then different kinds of horrors. And it just kind of is further building this world or this asylum as a place that's just full of the most terrifying individuals because of what's been done to them. Right, yeah. It's crazy to me that this corporation thought it was a great idea to take mentally unstable people and to make them dangerous. And their attempts to somehow make money off of this uh, nanotechnology experiment. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, why would you do this? Yeah. This is going to blow up in your face eventually. Wayland enters what looks like a cremation room. Multiple furnaces are active, fire shooting out of them. As Wayland walks through the room, someone bangs against the only door nearby. Wayland slowly moves towards the door, but is suddenly pushed back as the grizzled cannibalistic patient from earlier rushes him, knocking him to the ground. The patient is covered in blood. His beard can be seen with the red liquid coating it fully. The meat is mine, the patient says, wearing a smile and raising his mechanical saw in the air. He holds Waylon in one hand against the furnace bed, sitting outside of the furnace, and tries to push the saw into his flesh. Waylon fights back and notices the patient is distracted. He stops the saw. You stay here and cook. The patient pushes Waylon back into the furnace, the fires underneath him unbearably hot. He panics, but notices a small hole of bricks in the back of the furnace. Waylon slams his body into the hole, trying desperately to get rid of more bricks so he can escape. With one last push, with all his body weight, Waylon smashes through the hole and to the other side of the furnace. He hears the cannibal patient behind him in the other room. No! No, you are mine! Standing up, Waylon quickly runs through a nearby open door. He can't go anywhere, as the doors to the room are locked. His only option is to go up. He goes back to the furnace room and begins to climb through a large hole and up debris and ledges as he is able to climb up multiple floors. While shimmying across a ledge, the ringing in his ears gets louder as he sees the black ghostly figure slowly flying up past him to the floors above. Finding an open vent, Waylon escapes into it and comes out to the other side. He can hear the noise of a saw in the distance. He runs again and makes it to the bathroom. Inside a stall, he hears a patient possibly drowning someone. Waylon opens the stall to see just that. 
a patient drowning a doctor in the toilet water. The patient does not notice Waylon behind him. Do you see who I am? Idiot! The patient screams at the doctor. The doctor pleads for his life. Waylon slowly closes the stall door and backs away. He whispers into his camcorder. Lisa, or whoever finds this, know that Murkoff is making monsters. I never seen the patients after they go through with the German so-called therapy, the engine. So much worse than I could have imagined. They may still be human, but something's been ripped out of them. And too many other things pushed back in. They were not all murderers. They were sick, but they weren't killers. Murgoth made them monsters. Dr. Rosette said that the engine had varying effects. The variant outcome's too erratic for any sort of prediction. I took it as idle cafeteria small talk, Raoul's endless chatter. I should have listened. Leaving the bathroom, he goes into another door that he hasn't been through and continues down the hallways and doors, dodging and hiding from patients looking to kill him, including the cannibal. Waylon makes it to a staircase that takes him to the courtyard outside. In a window, the cannibal screams out in anger. The fog is thick and hard to see through as Waylon speaks. I scream. Is it him? The cannibal? Could be pleasure or pain, I, I won't guess. I'm not sure he'd even know. His voice sounds like something I wanted while watching the engine. Its only message is hunger. To crush and consume. I'm going to try to forget it, Lisa. If I get out of here, I'm going to come back to you. Waylon moves through the fence paths in the courtyard, bloody footprints painted on the stone path as he walks on. Through a metal barred window, Waylon sees a patient seemingly playing basketball with a severed head. He's playing alone and losing. Is that what the game is? There's a mathematical proof. If you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 up to infinity, you can arrive at an answer. If you stop shy of infinity, you have an indescribably long number. If you continue all the way to infinity, you arrive at negative one twelfth, negative zero point zero eight three 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 three. Repeating. Oh God, I'm losing my grip on things. I'm thinking about the drive here, four hundred miles in a rented truck, the job that shows up just in time to cover our bills, our debts, the insurance, the boy sleeping in the back. Nothing but the AM radio, gospel, country western, late night paranoia, talk radio. We sang Patsy Cline songs and laughed at the conspiracies of aliens and ghosts. Mile marker numbers passing in the headlights. I don't want to die here. Is it okay if I interject? Definitely. I really like how we're seeing what I'm assuming or what feels like foreshadowing for Waylon just losing his mind. And, like, reflecting on things that got him here and talking about those bills and debts, which, I mean, further gives you those hooks and how it feels like all of this was orchestrated in some way. Like, him taking Mm -hmm. this job, what felt like just maybe it was a bad choice, was totally planned by Murkoff. And now we're seeing just Waylon just go insane in real time in a really terrifying but really interesting way. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I put it in here because, like, it's kind of like a like a one-off moment like you, you can just kind of see it and, and not think much of it but i thought like he's like staring at this patient through a window and this patient is playing basketball with a severed head and but he recognizes that the, that the patient's just playing against himself and they're losing and i think he kind of like knows that that's it's crazy but then he goes off on this tangent about numbers and realizes that he might be losing his grip too and and you're right like he 
he is putting the pieces together, whether he's crazy now or not, and understands that like it's so strange that he got a job just in time um, when they were moving that was going to cover his bills, his debt, his insurance, everything, and how happy he was to take that job, and and now he's here. And so I, I, I thought it was a really good way of kind of explaining his backstory in a sense without giving like without sticking to it too long, and also seeing how he's falling into this pit of madness from the the therapy he received. Yeah, I mean, it makes you, at least it makes me think, like, even if he somehow survives this, who is the person who that's going to be at the end? Yeah, um, yeah. And, Which is really interesting. Yeah, I really like that. That interjection of, of dialogue is, I think, so interesting to me, and I, I really love that. We kind of got that, too, with Miles, in a sense, in the first game, but it just wasn't as, I think, interesting. Yeah, not nearly as deep. As it is with Waylon. I don't know if it's because of Waylon himself is more of a charismatic character, I, I, I think, when I see him, or when I listen to his story. But you, you can tell that, like, he's just, something's not right. And you're right. I wonder, too. Like, he's desperately trying to get back to his family. But will he be the same person that his family remembered him being, you know? Or is it too late for him? Yeah, and I think with Miles, they kind of just wanted to make, like, this empty case of a character. And mm-hmm. I think we talked about that a little bit in, in Outlast in that episode, where Waylon feels like this fully formed individual who has, like, experiences outside of this and has drives outside of this. And we, we get an idea of his, his mind which makes it even more meaningful to watch him go through this, I think, which uh, yeah. they did a great job with that. And again, we're kind of, I, I question as we're going through the story as like, when you do the right thing, you should feel good about it. But for Waylon, I thinking that he might have some regrets as much as he wanted to do the right thing. Now he's in this experience. He's losing his mind. It wasn't the, re- the best choice for him and for his family. It's hard to know. Yeah. Wayland stops watching the patient and continues to follow the open paths, hoping that they will lead him to the shortwave radio in the prison. The fog is still thick and hard to see. He can hear patients walking close by. He hopes they don't hurt him. Behind a locked fence, two similar-looking and naked patients walk by, knives in their hands. He looks nervous, says the first one. I would like to kill him, says the second. The two leave Waylon alone as he finds a staircase leading to the prison he needs and makes his way up. A patient stands by the railing at the top of the stairs, his back to Waylon. He begins to speak. Don't trust them. They'll tell you it's science, but it's not. They were waiting for us in this place. Billy understood. They've always been here. Really quick, I want to take a, just a quick second. Ryan, did you recognize who those two people were just a second ago? Yeah, that was super, those terrifying twins, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's interesting, too, I don't really understand why. So there's a part, they walk by this fence. They can't get to you, but they they say that he, like, Waylon looks nervous, and the other one wants to kill him, much like what they say to Miles. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as Waylon continues, he actually walks by them. They're just standing there with their knives just waiting for him, but he just walks by them and around. And I thought that was super weird. I didn't really quite understand this. I didn't put it in the script. But I just wanted, I thought it was so cool that they, they brought them back and, and, kind of sprinkled them into Waylon's story and how it connects with with Miles. And I think this is like where they're trying to find Miles and they're trying to kill him. Yeah, that was my thought. Because as soon as we see these twins, I want to know where is Miles right now? Where is he in all of this? And what is the state of this place um, now compared to where we first, um, where we started with Waylon? I think that's really interesting. Yeah. 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 I'm trying to make sure too, and storygoers, try your best to to pay attention as well. Um, I try to do my best to leave the hints that Miles is, may have been in this spot or this is the part of the story where Miles is at. You know, like there's subtle clues they did that Red Barrel did a really good job at leaving to just kind of show you where in the main story you are compared to Miles as Waylon. 
Going into the prison building, Wayland sees more of the same brutality and bloodshed as before. Dead Murakoff employees and patients litter the ground, left to decay in the hallways. Wayland makes it to a security control room and finds the shortwave radio to his delight. He turns it on and turns the knob. A voice comes over the static. Leadville 911, what's your emergency? Before he can say anything, a hand from behind him grabs the radio as an elbow gets smashed into his face. The man who sent Wayland to this hell on earth, Jeremy Blair, holds the radio in his hand. He smashes the radio with the security baton before hitting Wayland across the face when he tries to run. Blair brings the baton to Wayland's neck, choking him. Wayland Park, you just couldn't... You just couldn't keep your mouth shut. You couldn't just play along. But you're done talking now. Wayland begins to feel himself slipping away when suddenly a large crash can be heard in the distance. Blair looks back and stops choking Waylon. Do me a favor and die here, Park. Blair runs away before a massive patient enters into the security room. Their body is covered in blood and face is completely mangled. No lips or nose on their face. Waylon hides and waits, hoping the hulking patient will leave. As he quietly makes it to the door, the massive patient hears Waylon and gives chase. Waylon runs fast, jumping over debris and shimming through a barricade to safety. An automated message comes over the intercoms of the prison building, instructing employees to exit the building through the administration block. Wayland feels joy now because he has a plan. Get to the administration block and get out. So, Ryan, stop again really quick. Do you recognize anything else? <laughs> uh, was that our friend, um, our, our spooky, smooth-talking friend? Yes, that is our... Oh, so that was uh, Jeremy Blair, the one who put... Yep. Yep. Him in there. And then our massive patient that chases Wayland for a little bit is Chris Walker, the yeah. patient who's constantly terrorizing Miles. And you don't really see Chris Walker a whole lot in this game, but it was kind of cool. He smashes through this door and, and you can hear, he has like kind of ch- chains coming off of his body. So you can hear the jingling coming off his body as he moves and, and you can recognize it really fast. Like, oh my God, it's Chris Walker. Oh no. And so it was kind of cool how Wayland has to run from him. But it's very, I think it's just kind of like a, a subtle like Easter egg. Not really subtle, actually. You should know that if you played the first game. It's just like a fun little Easter egg thing to throw in there, I think. Yeah, here's all these other terrifying individuals. Here's some more. Here's all the ones, yeah. uh, the old ones. Here, the, the gang is getting back together, and here they all are. The most terrifying gang ever. Yeah. I also think it's really interesting that they've, they did a really good job of making it believable and that his first goal he isn't able to achieve, but he right away gets a new one. Although I've heard in the past somewhere before that employees act to exit through the administration uh, and it doesn't go well. Yeah. I think the team did a really good job making sure that the stories made sense with what's going on. So like, And so for Miles' story, whatever went on at that time was going to go on at the same time for Waylon if that was meant, you know, if he's in the same area or whatnot, like it was, it all works and flows together really well. There's no like inconsistencies with the setting in terms of the story and what's going on at certain times. Exiting a metal door, Waylon finds a priestly looking figure in the halls. The priest is painting the words down the drain in blood on the wall next to a large hole. He speaks to Waylon. <sighs> Another poor soul. Do not be afraid. You're doing his work, whether you know it or not. Wayland says nothing and decides to jump down into the large hole next to the priest. He whispers into his camcorder. Somebody who looks as much like a priest as this place looks like an asylum, writing instructions on the wall, talking about God, tells me not to be afraid. 
How was I ever part of this inhumane, bullshit, greed-driven, moral genocide? The monsters Murkoff ripped from tortured minds. The lengths their jack-booted business schoolworms will go to protect it. Their own men slaughtered. I've never prayed in my life, Lisa. But if some small-minded interventionist, God is listening. Kill Jeremy Blair before I die. Sanity and avarice. There's no pain he doesn't deserve. There's no radio. No hope of reaching the outside world. Only escape. Waylon continues to explore the never-ending hell into his Mount Massive Asylum. Out a window and down to another room, Waylon finds a message left on a piece of paper. It reads, Above the knees, below the navel, sliced and sewn on Gluskin's table. To make a place to push inside, the groom will make himself a bride. The sentence is repeating several times on the paper, but Waylon didn't understand what it meant. Finding a hole in the fence nearby, Waylon travels through the sewer tunnels and out into the courtyard again, trying to find the administrative block. Walking into a mysterious building, Waylon peers inside to see someone in the back of the building staring back at him. They're large and look somewhat familiar. The figure moves out of sight. Waylon finds another piece of paper with scribbles next to his foot. It reads, Kill us. Burn the building. Worse than death here. Kill us. Kill us. Waylon turns around, but is chased by a random patient into a nearby building with an open door. He goes in and shuts it behind him. He moves through the building and out through another door. As he continues, a patient falls in front of Waylon. The fall killing the patient and startling Waylon, he stares at the dead body and comments. Oh God, it would be so easy. I don't believe it anymore. Getting the truth out, there is no truth. Only lies we've accepted too long to double back on. It's our children, Lisa. I would take the easy way out if it wasn't for the boys. Damn this place to hell. I'll suffer anything to get out of it. Waylon tries to find paths to take, but nothing is working. He decides to climb up to a nearby building and hopefully move around the rooftops to figure out another way to the administrative block. As he makes it to the roof, the roofing underneath his feet gives way, and Waylon falls into the building. Slowly getting up and checking himself, Waylon sees he has no injuries. He grabs his camcorder and looks around. He can hear the patients walking inside. Waylon hears them talking about wishing to find a goat to give so that they could be spared. He doesn't understand what they're talking about. The floor underneath Waylon's feet creaks and the patients all stop. A gift for the groom, one patient says out loud happily. Waylon tries to stay quiet as he continues to move through all the debris littered throughout the floor. Hiding in the debris is a patient who quietly whispers to Waylon, Shh, if they catch us, they'll give us to him, the man downstairs. The, the man, he's very bad, very, very, very bad. Oh, God, oh, God. Waylon knows that getting caught will not lead to positive outcomes, so he continues to stay quiet. With all of the debris in the way, Waylon accidentally knocks over an object causing noise. The patients walking around hear Waylon and try to move through the debris to get to him. Jumping over a small wall, Waylon runs into the patients looking for him. They agree that he's perfect for the groom. He makes it to a staircase and runs down, but he hears the patients celebrating, ecstatic that Waylon just delivered himself to the groom for them. Waylon realizes the room downstairs is dark and he can't see. It's filled with sewing machines on top of multiple tables. There's a light in the back that Waylon moves towards. Around the corner, what he sees terrifies him. He records the scene on his camcorder and details his findings. <sighs> a man's body, mutilated and bent to mimic, or 
mock the moment of birth, the kind of thing that a man cannot see without changing in some irreparable way. Lisa, I was with you when both of our boys were born. It was, until recently, the most miraculous thing I had ever seen. Completely outside of reasonable belief and yet somehow central to everything I've come to believe since. You've always said I was too literal-minded, tried to turn everything into a if-then statement. Lately, I've widened my horizons. How can the things I've seen here be? But I know the answer. Money. Profit. Things we made just because we could. So really quick, just to pause. I want to make sure it's understood because it's, it's hard to, it might be a little hard to understand. So Wayland turns the corner and finds this person just mutilated, right? And it's a scene that looks like a, a birthing. There's like a dead body chained next to this uh, other body. The chained body is holding the hands of the person giving birth. But the person in this display giving birth, uh, their sex is, is male, um, so they're born with a, a male body, male genitalia. But the birthing scene, it, it just doesn't work, obviously. Um, so Wayland's very confused. Like, why is he seeing this? He thinks it's a mockery. Like, someone's mocking the birthing process. Um, so I just want to make sure that's understood. Does that make sense to you, Ryan? Yeah, that makes sense. And there's certainly, with the, the context clues of other things going on, it feels like there is something else going on here with some of the, the notes that you found, the things that people are saying. I can understand this feeling to him in this in this you know torrential wave of terror, just <laughs> sounding like more nonsense. But at least to me, it feels like there's something connecting all this that is leading up to something even more terrifying. Kind of similar to in the first game when we talked about the when you find a note about what pieces to cut off um, and and things like that. Yeah, it is definitely similar in that regard. I think you're right. Yeah, it's it's just how disturbing someone's going to go to get the things that they want yeah, and think that it's an okay thing to do to other people. And we'll see that concept a lot in this story very soon. And we'll see how much of a, of a mimic or a mockery this, this scene is and how like, you know, serious it may or may not have been. Ooh. Yeah. It's pretty bad. We can hear music playing in the distance, cheerful music that made him uneasy. He walks to the closest door, but feels a cold shiver go down his spine when a shadow fills the small glass insert in the door. Turning on the night vision on his camcorder, he sees a person smiling at him, their eyes glowing in the night vision. Darling, they said before trying to open the door, separating them. Waylon turns and runs. He can feel that if he's caught by this person, it's over. He runs away, runs past the sewing machine tables and through any door he can. He can see poorly drawn pictures of what looks like wedding dresses on the walls. The sentence, love makes a house, written in blood. In the distance, Waylon hears singing. When I was a boy, my mother often said to me, Get married, son, and see how happy you will be. Waylon runs faster, pushing debris out of the way of a nearby door and running anywhere he can to get away. I had looked all over, but no girly I could find who seems to be just like the little girl I had in mind. No matter how much he runs, the voice seems just as close. As he pushes more debris out of the way of a door, Wayland sees him. Darling, the large man says, jumping over a table to get to Wayland. Wayland is able to open the door and continues to run. You could be so beautiful, 
the man says, chasing after Waylon. I want you to have my baby. I think for me, the scariest part of this is, again, kind of like uh, Traeger in the last one, there's this person who I think the way they're speaking and the things they're doing feel so different from how terrifying it is. It's it's like the uncanny valley. I don't know if that's the right term, but like this, <laughs> here's a person singing and dancing and frolicking, so happy and excited, but just the backdrop is so terrifying. And that juxtaposition, I think, is what is, is so horrifying about this scene. Yeah, yeah. In terms of like Miles and Traeger, when he's locked in the wheelchair and he's kind of just taunted and he goes and gets his fingers cut off, it's kind of like that helpless moment. You have no you have no control over anything going on in that moment. So it's kind of more like you're just in, in for the ride. Whereas with Waylon right now, he has some control in the situation, but that almost makes it a little bit scarier. Cause if you mess up, then you're done. You know, yeah. you have that, that little bit of control you have the, that you have in the situation. I think it makes it even more terrifying. Cause you know that if you mess up this terrifying individual who has plans that, that will not work, uh, we'll get you, and that's horrifying. <laughs> well, we'll not work without some kind of terrible mutilation or 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 something. Like you, it, we're our minds are filling the gaps here, and based on what mm-hmm. we've seen, it's horrifying. Yeah, and I think now we can kind of piece together that that scene that we had stumbled across of the the birthing um, was less was less so a mockery and definitely more of a, a mimic or or attempt at something some aspirational art you can say. <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> yeah Wayland sees an empty elevator shaft with a ladder bolted to the wall he jumps and grabs the ladder but slowly the ladder begins to break sending Wayland down to the elevator below he screams in pain and looks at his leg a piece of metal lodged in it and he painfully removes it he screams in agony oh god oh god are you okay the man questions worried for Wayland. tell me you're okay I hate to think of you suffering without me. Why would you do something like that to yourself? Wayland stands on his good leg and looks at the elevator shaft at the man. You'd rather, rather die than be with me? He questions to Wayland. Then die. The man closes the elevator gate and leaves. The elevator under Wayland begins to move slowly up, allowing him to get to the nearest floor. Wayland limps, trying to find an exit on the floor, but he hears him. What a view. Oh, then we continue. Waylon realizes he's not free yet. The psychopath thinks Waylon is playing with him. He knows there's no reasoning with this person. He just needs to escape. Waylon limps fast, trying to get away. Even these idiots and lunatics see it. There's something special about you. On the surface. Waylon makes it to a door, but it won't open. He can't go back the way he came. He notices a locker next to the door and gets inside. He hopes the man won't find him. Mmm. Close, I can... The smell of my lover's arbor. Darling, you can't hide from me. The man locks the locker, trapping Waylon inside. (laughs) You made yourself a gift for me. A delicacy to be unwrapped. And unwrapped again and savored the man's face comes into view through the broken locker ventilation slots his eyes are bloodshot and face covered in cuts and boils it's a familiar face it's then that Waylon realizes that this person is the same patient who begged him for help to not go into the morphogenic engine earlier on 
the same patient who pressed against the glass separating them at the time, begging for his life, Eddie Gluskin. Here we go. And the locker begins to get dragged, going to parts unknown. I've been a little <laughs> vulgar. I know, and I want to say I, I'm sorry, Eddie says. I just, you know how a man gets when he wants to know a woman. Eddie continues to drag the locker, holding Waylon inside. But after the ceremony, when I've made an honest woman out of you, I promise I will be a different man. Eddie stops dragging the locker and looks at Waylon through the hole in the locker vents. <sighs> I want a family, a legacy, to be the father I never had. I'll never let anything happen to our children. Not like... Eddie stops talking, looks around, and drags the locker some more before stopping again. You'll have to wait here. I know you must be just as eager as I am to consummate our love, but try to enjoy the anticipation. Eddie brings the locker upright as Waylon sees what's in store for him. He sees a table saw drenched in blood and chains hanging bodies from the ceiling. Here, darling, this will help you relax. Eddie sprays something into Waylon's face, causing him to pass out. Let's stop right there for a second. So, how terrified yeah. are you? <laughs> I'm terrified reading this. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's being trapped and out of, and having no control and knowing something terrible is going to happen is uh, horrifying. And this mm -hmm. character, and I think it, it's really interesting that they've made this character somebody that you watched become this this person, this this monster. You you were mm -hmm. in some ways instrumental in the creation of it, and now you're facing that. Right, um, head on, which I think adds another layer of of terror, but yeah, this is, it's really scary, and it's it's, and again, I think what makes it terrifying is the complete and utter lack of control, and knowing you're moving towards something that's going to be gruesome and terrible. But at to this point, the only ideas you have are what's in your head, which is oftentimes more terrifying than the actual scene. But we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, but and, and this is what I was talking about before. Um, with the with toxic masculinity and how Eddie presents himself uh, in front of what he thinks is this woman he's trying to court um, in, in the figure of Waylon, right? Who is, I think his sex is male, but in Eddie's mind, he's someone totally different. He just wants desperately to have this family and to be married and to have kids and be happy, which are very like positive things to strive for. But the way, I mean, in the situation, it's just not going to work. And But for Eddie, it's very toxic. For example, when he says something like, um, I've been vulgar, and I know that, and I'm very sorry. You just know how a man gets when he wants to know a woman. It's just interesting how, like, Eddie thinks it's okay to act this way in order to get to know somebody better. Um, and I think, this, I think that the team at Red Barrel did a really good job at kind of showcasing the, the side of toxic masculinity but for eddie uh all of this is okay because in his mind his intentions are pure so he apologizes he says he's going to be better but again that's what toxic masculinity is in a lot of cases promises that will never be kept and we're about to see how far eddie will go to get what he wants even though it's going to cause pain and, and suffering for those 
uh, involved. Yeah, and I think toxic masculinity can manifest itself in a lot of ways. But what is is so well done, I think, about this scene is that everything is Eddie saying is the right thing, right? He, I mean, it's not the right thing. It's it's something that some people may believe to be the right thing to say in this situation, mm-hmm. right? Um, saying, you know, I just want a family. I just want to be happy. I just want to, you know what I mean? All these types of things. Um, again, Eddie not reflecting at all on what the other person wants or needs or their desires are or what is important to them. And even though in this moment the power dynamic is shifted in a way that one person has no power and one person has all the power, and that's really mm-hmm. terrifying, they're basically putting us in the position of a lot of individuals in the world, right, who are in similar right. situations where you have this individual who has all the power and is just kind of imposing his will on others, and you're just kind of along for the ride and to their whims, um, which is terrifying. But again... Yeah. What is even more terrifying is that this happens not just in a terrifying asylum with people who've been mutated by this evil, you know, process, but this is something that actual people experience, which is uh, gross even and, and terrifying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely gross. Definitely. And I think what is so interesting is I, as a, a, a heterosexual male, I can never fully understand what this experience is like, but here is a media that is forcing me to at least try to or put me in a situation where I could maybe get some um, ideas of what this might be like. And that's really hard to do. And I think that's part of the reason why these issues like toxic masculinity and the other things within our culture that are perpetuated by our culture continue to sustain because we it's so hard to communicate what this experience is like. And here's a game that's maybe not 100% successfully doing it, but it's it's trying to, and it's trying to get us to see what this is like and what that pyrodynamic looks like in a really interesting way. Yes, definitely, definitely. And I think that's really cool. I like that they can give a perspective that maybe we would not necessarily get in real life because yeah. of the situation that we're in or our circumstances. I don't know. I, I, I think that is really a very useful thing if you allow it to be. You yeah, know? I think it's worthwhile. It, yeah, it's worth You can learn something from this. You can learn that maybe how you interact with people isn't going to jive as well as you think it does as long as you are inside your own head or you think that your actions will be okay if it has a good outcome at the end, which it isn't. You know, if your actions are not okay and you're hoping for a good outcome, I mean, that's probably not going to happen. And you're probably still going to look very, very bad. <laughs> so, I mean, in, definitely in Eddie's case. See, see, miraculously, this all works out in Eddie's favor. Is it still a good thing that he's doing? No, of course not. This isn't okay. He's forcing Waylon to do all these things. That's not okay. Um, yeah, sorry. Just super interesting. I just, yeah. This topic itself, you can go on for a whole episode about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the horrors in itself, the idea of toxic masculinity itself is just terrifying. Um, so I, I like that the team at Red Barrel who made the game, brought that in in such a unique situation. I think it's such a, it's a cool touch. It's something that Miles never really had to go through, in a sense. Um, but Waylon, unfortunately, does. And, and I think it's, a, it's interesting, for sure. Yeah, and I think one last thing is the best way for us to understand these types of things in a way, understanding that we cannot fully, is, again, sharing our thoughts and perspectives, is, is yep. being open to hearing these kinds of conversations and these kinds of things in a way that us as two individuals who are from a similar background, of a similar experience, only have a limited view on the world. And the best way we're going to learn more about that is experiencing media that forces us to do so and talking and hearing other perspectives. So if you're listening to this and you have some thoughts and opinions and want to know more about or want to help educate us on what this might be like, please reach Mm -hmm. out. Let us know. Talk to us. That's the best way we're going to learn and better understand the world and 
as a community, learn and better understand the world. Yes, I 100% agree. I think understanding this kind of perspective is important so we can all grow and, and become better people. Um, so yeah, any thoughts, feelings, perspectives, let us know. We'd love to learn from that. That'd be really cool. Waylon is knocked out and goes in and out of consciousness several times. Each time he wakes up, he sees Eddie try and give gender reassignment surgeries to unwilling patients in the attempt to make his bride. Each time, Eddie fails in his attempt, causing anger and frustration. When Waylon fully awakens, he sees his wrists tied to wooden posts on either side of him. He looks down and sees he's completely naked, with both his ankles tied to posts as well, a saw blade positioned between his legs. You have amazing bone structure, Eddie says, rubbing Waylon's leg. Such soft skin. You're going to be beautiful. Waylon struggles to free himself, but it does not work. A woman has to suffer some things. It's not pleasant, I know. But just try to endure. For my sake. For the sake of our children. Waylon continues to struggle and panic. It won't take long. A few snips at the flesh here and here. Cut away everything vulgar. A soft place to welcome my seed, to grow our family. The buzzsaw comes to life as Eddie prepares to bring Waylon down to it. The incision will hurt, and the conception, and birthing is never easy. I'll make the cut fast. Just close your eyes and think of our children. As the blade begins to move closer and on Waylon, a random patient jumps out of the shadows and attacks Eddie. Their struggle breaks a wooden post holding Waylon's arm in place. With his free arm, Waylon is able to untie his other limbs and jumps off the table saw. He finds his asylum jumpsuit and puts it back on, grabs his camcorder and turns it on, and sets it to record. He runs and talks to the camcorder, his emotions everywhere. Still intact. I'm here. Lisa, it's still me. He... <laughs> He tried to make me his bride. He tried to cut me. Maybe I was wrong. Telling the world would only draw it here. Should this place just die and fester here? I, I won't tell the world if it means spreading the infection. Let it die. Let it rot. Waylon continues to limp away, trying to find a way to escape. I'm trying to be patient, darling. Waylon hides behind a table in the dark as Eddie looks for him. All of you whores! Your judgment, your little swinish eyes. Waylon moves in the dark slowly, but Eddie hears him. You crazy bitch! Eddie yells as Waylon limps away as fast as he can. Whore, how could you do this to me? Going through rooms and slamming doors behind him, Waylon limps as fast as he can away from Eddie. In the distance is an open window, his only way out. No, don't! Eddie pleads. Waylon jumps from the window into the concrete below. Smashing into the ground, Waylon wails in agony, gripping his already hurt leg. You all want to leave me, is that it? You want to leave me? Fine. Go. You and the rest of those ungrateful sluts. Eddie yells from the window Waylon escaped from. So, I, I want to take a quick second here. Um, because I think this is kind of interesting and important to know for Eddie's background. In this moment, when Waylon jumps down and gets away from Eddie... Again, he finds this like random folder on the ground outside in the courtyard next to a water fountain. And I just thought 
it made no sense to just like randomly find this thing because but other than the fact that it's a game and that's what happens so I thought taking a second just to go over what you find in this document is important because it's a document about Eddie. So when Waylon looks at it, it says that Eddie has a history of sexual trauma from his father and his uncle, like severe sexual trauma, and that it led Eddie to become very mentally unhealthy growing up to the point where he was killing women um, because they didn't love him. Like he was being rejected, and so he's killing these women. And that's why he was institutionalized at Mount Massive Asylum. And he's very good at being manipulative, telling people what he thinks they want to hear. So when he's going through this, um, when he's going through the Wall Rider project, the uh, morphogenic engine therapy, he's telling them that, yes, I'm, I'm entering these lucid state dreams. I can, I can do this. I feel it in the back of my mind. Whereas the scientists see the results and they're like, no, there's no way that you're achieving this thing. You're lying to us. We know you're lying to us. So again, just super interesting that Eddie, he's, he's very manipulative. And, and I, one last thing I, I always forget, I not always forget, I, just, I forgot this really quick, is that when he's questioned about his life, he's questioned about his background, he says that he had a very, uh, quote, leave it to beaver childhood. It was the perfect childhood, right? But then when these scientists show these, so they show him these pictures, and it's of his sexual abuse that his father and his uncle took of him, he just completely rejects it. Like, he's, his, his mind is totally blocked out this this experience, though I think in his subconscious, he obviously knows what's going on. It's very, it's, a, it's affected him negatively significantly. So that, I think that kind of paints this picture as to why Eddie is so bent on becoming a father and being a loving husband and, and just wanting to be one happy family because he never had that. In that moment, early on in the story where he's dragging Waylon down in the locker, he says, I want to be the father I never had. I'll, I'll never let what happened to me happen to our kids or something along that line. We don't know what he means. That's what he means, that he will not be sexually abusing anyone the way he was by his father. So just thought it was really interesting to just point that out. Yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting. It's kind of exploring here is one way where in which trauma can lead to this crazy experience. And obviously it leads to Eddie being, even before this, uh, maybe an individual who needs a little bit of help. Yeah. Um, what I thought was really interesting uh, about this last encounter is you see that now that we know that he's incredibly manipulative, you see when he doesn't get the things he wants, that that veil of manipulation falls. Mm -hmm. And he just instantly starts calling um, Waylon this, you know, a slut, a terrible person. How could you do this to me? Why would you want to leave me? Which, again, echoes what you a lot of times could see in these, in these types of relationships mm -hmm. where... As soon as the, the the thing you want isn't achievable, that person is no longer valuable. And that toxic masculinity is tied to the fact that you don't see uh, women or other individuals as humans, right? They're, right? they're just things to further your desires. Um, and this is just, again, further representing that in, in an interesting way. In, in, and it's interesting. It's always them, right? And he's like, why would you Why would you do this to me? Like me of all people. Why would you ever do this to me? And, and obviously it's because like this is one, this situation is really messed up. Um, but two, in a normal relationship, obviously that something's not working here, you know? And so it's very easy yeah. for people in that situation to take it personally and, and to, to say, like, you know, you're the problem, not me. You know, like, and when I say personally, <laughs> I mean, like, they're perfect and, you know, the other person isn't. Yeah. And they, they take that as, like, a, what's wrong with you? Know, what's wrong? Like, this is great. What's wrong with you? What You know, this is your fault. You have a problem here. Um, so, yeah, just just more interesting background on eddie but just didn't fit in the script very well so i wanted to kind of discuss it and, and make sure that it was kind of understood why 
in some ways Eddie's doing what he's doing. And in the fact too, I think it would weigh less on Wayland's shoulders. Um, the fact that maybe he like he could have stopped Eddie from going into the morphogenic engine and really screwing his head up, but it sounds like Eddie already had a lot on his plate already, so maybe it's not totally Wayland's fault this is all happening. Um, it sounds like Eddie was pretty, you know, in the thick of it already before this all happened. Wayland's leg is worse than ever, but he limps up nearby stairs into a door. Inside, the door to the male ward is locked, so he tries to find the key. As he searches, he finds his way into the auditorium. He looks up at countless bodies hanging from the ceiling. Wayland records what he sees. <sighs> bodies hanging like wet laundry, like skinned rabbits. Men mutilated, hunted, and murdered. The shortest distance between any two points separates violence and ruined lust. <sighs> Whatever story he's telling himself, he's not making women to bear his children. He's making women to kill them. Lisa. I want you to burn this place and any evidence that ever existed at the ground. Destroy the Murkoff Corporation. Bury it in shame. Take away its money. Wipe it from history. This man thinks he's in love. He thinks that therapy made him better. Everything reeks of death and fear. Piss and coppery blood. Meat decomposing to game. Waylon moves through the open double doors to the other side of the auditorium, searching for the mail ward key. In the distance... He can hear Eddie singing again. Waylon grits his teeth and limps faster. He turns a corner to find a makeshift wedding ceremony. Rows of empty chairs fill the room, someone in a wedding dress up in the front. Waylon moves to the bride and sees his dead body holding the male ward key. He grabs it and turns to see Eddie coming down the aisle. Filthy sluts! You don't deserve my children! Waylon runs from the nearby side door and limps away. Running back to the auditorium, he's able to escape through an open vent. He gets out of the vent and runs to the male ward door. Waylon unlocks the door, but is grabbed from behind by Eddie, who punches him in the face. One more! I try, and I try, and you all betray me! Eddie continues to punch Waylon in the face, and then pushes him into the auditorium. You can hang, like the rest! Eddie ties a rope around Waylon's neck and lifts him up. Waylon chokes his throat being crushed as he hangs in the air. Heavier than you look. If this is you on the honeymoon, I'd hate to imagine our anniversary, Eddie comments. Waylon struggles to get free as Eddie struggles to hang him. Waylon can see wood beginning to crumble above him, and the roof breaks as he falls to the ground. Hold still, Eddie demands. God damn it! Darling, you need to behave. Uh, no, 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 no! Eddie pulls the rope around Waylon's neck harder, but he struggles to keep him up. Waylon thrashes back and forth, trying to stay alive. Several ropes from the pulley system holding the dead patients on the roof of the auditorium begin to break. The ropes catch Eddie, who's lifted up by them. As Waylon sees what's about to happen, Eddie grabs his hand and says, You could have been beautiful. Waylon's rope breaks, causing him to fall to the ground, while Eddie is lifted up and impaled by a metal rod. Wayland stands up and grabs his camcorder, aiming it at the now-dead Eddie Gluskins. He's dead. The amateur surgeon, father-to-be husband. His guts shredded and pulled from his belly. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh. Oh God, Lisa, I swear to you I'm trying. Wayland slowly limps back to the entrance of the male ward and enters. He follows the hall to see a window. 
Out the window, Waylon sees a chapel consumed in flames. <sighs> a chapel on fire in the distance. I didn't even know we had a church. Where's God when you need him? Continuing down the hall and arriving at a door gate, Waylon watches his military soldiers stare down at the body of someone wearing broken glasses, half a surgeon's mask, and an apron covering their lower body. They were crushed between an elevator door and the floor. Ugh, what kind of sick fuck would do this to somebody? Even took his goddamn pants, a soldier says to the others. Waylon knows he can't trust them and moves through a nearby door. He can hear the radio from the nearby soldiers. Multiple officers down in sub-basement. Unknown assailant. We need evac and paramedics. Oh, no! God! As he walks down more abandoned hallways, Waylon can't help but feel a little hopeful once he makes it to the main lobby of the asylum. He can see the front doors wide open with someone laying against the door. A someone Waylon knew all too well. Jeremy Blair. Jeremy Blair. My supervisor's supervisor. A man who had seen me skinned, salted, and raped for a promotion and a few martinis. Injured. Dying if he's not already dead. I'm trying to feel sorry for him. I really am. But there's no way in hell he's stopping me from getting out of this godforsaken place. I'm coming home, Lisa. Mr. Park. <clears throat> a shallow voice calls out. Jeremy Blair laid injured against the door. How the fuck are you still alive? <laughs> Let's make a deal. You help me. I'll help you. <clears throat> help me up, please. Waylon tries to go around Blair before Blair stands up and grabs him. From Blair's other hand is a knife that he plunges into Waylon's stomach. Fucking die already! Waylon backs away while Blair moves closer. No one can know. No one. He grabs Waylon, about to plunge the knife into him again, before he's lifted into the air by a familiar black, ghostly shadow. Blair screams. Ah, what the f- uh, Oh, God. Oh, Christ in heaven. I had to get out. The ghostly figure takes Blair by both arms and rips his body in two. Waylon quickly stands up and runs out the door. He doesn't look back. Passing abandoned military vehicles, he runs to the gate to find a red jeep unoccupied. He gets inside and finds the keys in the ignition. He starts the car and looks up. In the distance, at the entrance of the asylum, he can see something. Someone. He takes his cancorder and zooms in. A person, consumed in black shadows, approaches. Waylon puts the jeep into drive as the black fog gets worse. He turns the jeep around and speeds away, slamming through the closed asylum gates. An unknown amount of time has passed since Waylon escaped Mount Massive Asylum. He hears a voice warn him one last time. You press that button, there's no going back, Mr. Park. There's enough hard evidence in that video file to make a world of shit for our friends at Murkoff. You got out of Mount Massive alive, and we've done everything in our power to cover your tracks. But our enemies are twitchy and malicious corporate paranoiacs with resources you're too moral to imagine. You won't be the only target. Anyone you care about, your wife, your child, there'll be nothing to murk off but ways to hurt you. I need you to understand the bridge you are crossing here. You will do irrevocable damage to the company. You might even get close to something like justice. But once you click upload, your life is over. 
everyone you love is fucked. But it's the right thing to do. Is hurting Murkoff worth that much to you? Wayland stares at the screen. The website Viraleaks displayed with his video evidence ready to upload. He stops for a second, his finger hovering in the air, and then presses enter. Document received, displayed on the screen. Wayland closes the laptop. The end. So ironically, Wayland is the one that gets all the <laughs> all the uh, evidence out into the world. Yeah. And while Miles, uh, we don't really know what happens with Miles, kind of. Um, but before we jump down too much stuff, Ryan, overall, what did you think of the story of Outlast Whistleblower? I really liked it. It certainly felt like uh, uh, almost like a, another take at Outlast mm-hmm. with a character who's more kind of deep and interesting and has more connections to the world um, with more tension in, in this space because you have more idea of what's going on. Um, I really liked it. It, it. It's as engaging um, as Outlast, but I think with some better story elements thrown in there. The characters are more interesting and engaging. Um, we see the horror of everything that's going on without that paranormal piece, and I don't think it takes away from it. I think mm-hmm. um, we, because at this point we know what the Wall Rider is, so we don't have to. That doesn't have to dangle above us the whole time. We know what it is. We know how it, how it exists. And now the only thing we have to deal with is like the real terrifying creatures in front of us um, which i really liked i I think it's really good and and this ending feels like both a really sad and tragic ending and both a really good ending and and i'm really curious to see who waylon is after this experience because we see at the end after he killed eddie that almost like a, a small shift where he knows he should be upset, but he's almost like, I can't help but laugh, right? Yeah. At, at, this, at this monster of a being dying, but there's a, a snippet of, of insanity that's in there. Um, but it doesn't matter. He, he still is able to do what he was going to do, no matter what the consequences were, uh, which is really interesting. And I'm curious as to what happened to his family and if he found them and what that means for them and how long after this happens. And it also makes me curious... If there's any of these, anything that happens here that ties to Outlast 2, which I know we talked about that we don't think it does, but mm-hmm. I'm really curious. Yeah, I would I would love if it did. And as far as I know, so I did a little bit of snooping. There are comic books that kind of dive into the endings, like further endings in the in the epilogues for these characters, kind of. But I don't think it's I don't think the series is fully out yet. I think there's like a there's like a issue six that's still coming. But as far as I know, what happens is Miles makes it home back to his apartment somehow. Um, but his neighbors comment that he looks very different. He seems kind of uh, cold. And I believe it's a, I can't remember if it's a dog or a cat, but their, their animal that typically does very well with Miles is freaked out by Miles, is like hates Miles, doesn't want to get anywhere near him. And then in some dialogue between some Murkoff employees, some higher ups, they comment that Miles has been neutralized. But no one really knows if he's dead or not. So um, that's kind of all we know about Miles. As for Waylon, he apparently took Miles's red Jeep and somehow, I don't, I'm not sure how, but made it to Billy Hope's old home where he abandoned the Jeep and then somehow made it back to his home where his wife and kids are. They burned the house down and then fled. No one knows where they are right now, um, but Murkoff has a picture of Waylon and his family in their possession and they're actively looking for him. Um, and I guess they tried to discredit the video that he uploaded, but it's just not taking. Like People know that this is a real thing that's happened, and Murkoff is, is really screwed for it. So that's as far as we know. And as, as far as I know, I've never seen Outlast 2. I've never played Outlast 2. But I know that there's hints of like Murkoff Corporation having 
been involved in what craziness happens in the story, but I don't know anything else besides that. So it'll be interesting to see when we cover it. Yeah, I really like the combination of these two stories. I think that was a really great choice because they together, I think, tell this really great full arc of a story that both experience the same terror, but from really different angles and from really different ways that give us a really cool full picture of everything that was going on there. Yeah, yeah. I just, I really hope they go back to this somehow and give us more information about Miles and Waylon. And I, I guess too, also I read, I don't know if this is confirmed or not. This is just like on the wiki, I think that Red Barrel did tweet or do something on social media saying that Miles is dead. Um, but then they deleted that tweet. So I don't know if that's true or not. I would love to see, I, I just feel like there's so much more there that we can get out of um, in terms of like, we go through this whole story with somebody, we don't know their ending. Like we, we don't deserve to know their ending necessarily, but it just feels kind of, you know, like a jip in a sense, like you don't know what happened to them at the end because you, you assume they're going to be hunted forever. So like there's going to be more happening to these people in this circumstance. But apparently also on Wikipedia through the Outlast um, page, it states that um, Red Barrel has uh, a smaller project related to Outlast 1 that would be released before Outlast 3. But then they also announced their new game, Outlast Trials, which takes place during the Cold War, apparently. So I don't know if that has anything to do with Outlast, the first game or not. Um, but regardless, I really hope we get more information on these characters. I, I would like that too. Um, what are your overall thoughts with the whole story now that you've completed both this and whistleblower now you mentioned that whistleblower i think is your preferred experience but what's your overall feelings of this game and then both games together yeah i, I think i've lost my mind a little bit covering them <laughs> they're really scary games like and they're really done well like they're just really unsettling because i think red bell went above and beyond like on delivering you a really horrific experience in two separate packages i do think i prefer whistleblower more than at last one because I think that the situation is a little bit more terrifying um, in a sense, but I still love both stories. And I, and I think as much as I don't like supernatural things all that much, I think they handled the wall rider in an interesting way. And I'm very curious as to where that will go. Cause I can't imagine that it wouldn't be this crazy nanotechnology wouldn't be present other places. So maybe it'll be an Atlas too. I don't know. But yeah, overall, I, I really like these stories. I think they're fantastic horror game stories and the mechanic of using the night vision, again, we don't go into to gameplay mechanics a lot in this podcast, but just the idea of having to use your night vision when you're kind of going through the story in your mind and it's being told to you, it's terrifying, you know, because it, it makes your situation even worse and you're in pitch black darkness and you're using a night vision on a camcorder to get through. Um, it's just really smart. I liked it a lot. It's something I really hope we get more of in the future. And it sounds like we will, so which is cool. I would I do wish though they they mentioned more about the wall rider in whistleblower because we see we see the wall rider a few times but Waylon never really comments on it so I don't really know if he knows more and just isn't really surprised or if he must know something about the nanotechnology but I don't know if he really knows what the wall rider is so I think I liked it more in Outlast the main the base game learning about the wall rider and learning that it's not the supernatural thing whereas i enjoyed the experience of Wayland's journey more because it was so unsettling and terrifying with eddie gluskins i think i would say eddie gluskins is more scary than traeger surprisingly um just because of the circumstances but yeah overall great stories i loved them a lot i i, I look forward to covering outlast 2 but i i worry that i won't like it as much as outlast 1 <laughs> maybe next spooky spooktacular Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, and that is the end of our spectacular month. Oh, yeah, it is. So sad. Send the ghosts out. 
Um, and again, thanks to all the listeners that were with us for the spooky month. We hope we gave you a lot of scares and a lot of things to kind of imagine in your brains as you listened. And uh, hopefully our voices, our soothing, uh, beautiful voices, did a good job for you. Um, and again, as always, if you want to give us your thoughts, feelings, and perspectives, email us at talesfromthecartridge at gmail.com. All of the E's in the email are threes, except for... Yeah, no, all the E's are threes, but that's not in the email. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we'll start including it in the in the notes, in the yeah. show notes. So in the show, yeah. In case, if it's confusing or if you've sent us in an email and you're like, why aren't these guys reading my 33 emails that I've sent them? <laughs> that's, that's where that is. Although I don't I don't think that's the case. But No, probably. I, I hope not. But at the same time, yeah. I hope someone is writing to us. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, also that. <laughs> and you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. DM us. Let us know what you think. We would love, 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 love to read your perspective. Um, but before we end, we kind of need to dive into the yes. changes coming. The future uh, yeah. of Tales from the Cartridge. The future. Yeah. Ryan, do you want to start us off on what the, that future looks like? Yeah. So as we kind of dived into this experience in the start of August as a kind of this way for us to talk about the games we love and talk about their stories in a really interesting way. And over time, we've just fallen in love with doing it. And it's it's really great to have a way to connect to games and talk to games in a new interesting way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we've been finding that, especially now that Eric's starting a new job and my work life is getting busier and, and everything in the world going on going forward, we want to make sure we have enough time and energy to dedicate to these stories to give them the experience that they deserve. So we're doing a bit of a programming change. Um, currently, you're getting four um, stories a month, um, which is every week we're uploading on Sunday. Every week we're uploading a new episode of Tales from the Cartridge featuring a different story or a continuation of the last week's story. Mm-hmm. Going forward, the plan is going to be to do one, what Eric has so smartly coined, DLC episode. <laughs> thank you, thank at you. The, yeah, at the start of the month where we'll talk about um, uh, our favorite games from the past month, what we're covering that next month, and just kind of some game chat about um, a certain topic or we'll bring some kind of fun game or something to that where we'll just kind of chat for a bit. It'll probably be a little shorter than our full uh, story episodes. And mm-hmm. that will allow us to then have only... That'll allow us to get have us more time to dedicate to those scripts. We'll then move to two scripts, two games a month. We'll cover two games a month each, um, which is one less episode is all. Mm-hmm. And those episodes will be beef with some more content, possibly some guests who we have we're tapping, some yes. friends to bring in some more thoughts, feeling, and perspectives from different people um, to, to get them in and adding of sound effects and other cool things that Eric has found for us to, to try out. Um, and then just to generally give us more time to make these scripts and episodes as high quality as possible for you guys as we're learning how to edit better and we're learning how to record better and we're learning how to make everything better to where in a year from now when you listen to that episode it sounds infinitely better than the episode you listened to you know our Bioshock episode at the beginning yes um, is there anything I missed is there anything else you want to say Aaron? no that sounds great I th- and I think I mean it's it sounds it may sound like a bummer that you're getting like one less episode a month but remember I think that's also important to remember too like these episodes are super long like they're pretty, pretty yeah. long um, and, and you know it's easy from our perspectives to feel like oh my god we gotta put out a new episode every single month but it's a lot of stuff to get through in a month so we're hoping that with two stories a month it's going to be better storytelling, more fleshed out, more time to edit. Um, and then by adding in like sound effects, it's going to help make you make the stories more immersive and more enjoyable. And then like Ryan said, having guests will bring, having guests will bring new perspectives. Finn is pissed. Uh, <laughs> no. be, be, Finn, you're not going to be a guest. I'm sorry. Um, 
bring new perspectives and thoughts, which is always fun to do. So, uh, but yeah, I think this is a really positive step going forward. Um, and I think as do you, Ryan. So, so I'm, I'm very excited for the future of this. Yeah, I, I kind of want to think of this podcast as a marathon. I want us to last for years and years to come. And yes. I, I, I think if we can make each experience a good experience, that is worth taking the time to do so. And again, like like Eric said, giving you guys more time to consume the media because we, sometimes it, two hours a week is, is too much. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So Or two hours every week is too much. So maybe have two weeks to record or, or to have two weeks to listen. And then again, it gives you guys more time to interact with us. So yeah. it, sometimes maybe you're like, I really want to email them about this episode, but then we're, we just released the next episode. This In those DLC episodes, we'll tell you what's coming up. So you can send us your thoughts and feelings beforehand and then afterwards. Um, and then it gives us more time to have those conversations. I think it's going to be a great way to keep up with fans and to hopefully give them a chance to write in and not feel like they missed out. And again, even if we covered a game that you maybe wanted to write in about, don't hesitate to still write in about it. We would love to still read your perspectives. Really, we truly do. Even if it's about Bioshock, our first episode, please write in. We're not going to forget those stories. You know, we're going to still be able to engage in those stories and discuss them. And, you know, there's no time like the present. So please don't hesitate. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm super excited about this change. I think it's going to be a positive one. And um, yeah. and we'll, we'll see moving forward if, you know, uh, if it works or not and, and go from there. <laughs> but we'll try our best, too, to also figure out a system where we can, like, you can visibly see... Uh, kind of what's going on for the month and maybe look into yeah. like the website or something. I don't know. We can talk about that. <laughs> yeah. As we, as we grow and want to make everything's more accessible and more useful, finding new ways to do that. And again, if you guys have ideas, let us know if it's, if, it, if it interests you guys to have like a uh, tales from the cartridge discord, we can put that together. Oh yeah. If it interests you guys for us to put something like that together to again, continue to create, I think part of the goal with this whole podcast experiment that Eric and I are going on is to not just have a space where we can talk about games, but create a space where a group of individuals can create a community. A group of individuals can have a community where we talk about games in a really different way than perhaps um, you see in a lot of the news media, or you see in a lot of games media. Yeah. Um, a really focus on story and those types of things and what these stories can help us learn about the games in the world. So I think on that note, Ryan, um, our spooktacular month is over and. Uh, oh wait, do we decide what game we're doing next week or next month? We didn't. No, we we didn't we'll, decide. We'll let them know. We'll let them know next. Episode. Yeah. Well, I think the next episode will be our our first DLC episode. Yeah, so yeah. if you want to know what we're playing, not just next week, but for the entire month of November, um, hopefully we'll have, we will. The goal is to have all that information in that DLC episode. Yes. Is what you're going to hear in November, what games we're going to cover in November, and so you can we'll give you dates and all that information on that there. It'd be perfect. It's going to work swimmingly, yeah. I'm sure. all right well then thank you so much for listening uh storygoers we will see you in the next story Bye. bye